Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's nine in the morning on Wednesday the 19th of December 2018 and my partner, our daughter and yours truly are flying to Lord Howe Island for the very first time. Just over six months ago, using the same research tools I used to make this podcast, I found and made contact with my biological family. My mind was blown and my heart was filled when I first spoke to my mother and to my two full biological brothers. What I also discovered was that my people hail from Lord Howe Island, and we go all the way back to its settlement in 1842. My mum and two uncles still live there. Now, we're all having our first Christmas together on Lord Howe, which is home to just 400 people, many, if not most of them, my cousins or related to me by marriage. Living in Australia and travelling to another country by necessity means going overseas. But flying over water in a big passenger jet at 35,000 feet feels very different from doing it in one of the 36-seater twin-prop Dash 8 planes that Qantas used to take passengers 780 kilometres northeast from Sydney to Lord Howe. Flying lower and slower, you really get a chance to soak in the vastness of the notoriously turbulent Tasman Sea. Actually, soak in is exactly the wrong phrase. It's one thing you definitely don't want to do down in that expanse of blue. After two hours in the air, the Dash 8 descends over the reef and breakers that enclose the bright blue lagoon that frames the western side of deep green Lord Howe Island. Just to the south, so close it feels like you could reach out and touch them, are Mount Gower, which rises 875 metres, and its close companion, Mount Lidgebird, at 777 metres. Then, we're down on the airport's short runway and taxiing to the little terminal. 
To the north, and leading along Lord Howe's narrow 10-kilometre length, are smaller but still steeply rising ridges that slope down to the lagoon and to the island's unspoiled beaches. Gazing around in awe and being a film nerd, the first thing I say is, welcome to Jurassic Park. And yes, sadly, I do say it in a bad dad joke Richard Attenborough voice. But Lord Howe Island really does inspire that reaction because the place is wild and beautiful. It's easy to imagine all sorts of epic adventures taking place here. From resurrected dinosaurs and jungle warfare to swashbuckling pirates and, of course, shipwreck survivors. Yet, very few movies have actually been made here because it's so remote. Most recent was Blake Lively's shark thriller The Shallows in 2015. The year before that, my brothers did a comedy short called Washed Up, which was shortlisted for Tropfest. In 1985, Colin McCulloch's bestseller, An Indecent Obsession, was adapted on the island. But the very first movie drama shot on Lord Howe was made way back in 1936. I'm sorry to say, gentlemen, that two of you are lying. One is an Australian detective, and the other was a desperate killer named Arnold. A murderer? Here? Heaven help us! What a murderer! How positively disgusting! This early talkie was called Mystery Island, and as I'll start to appreciate on this, my first visit, there are a lot of mysteries from the period of its production. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. I'll be releasing part two later this week, and from then on, instalments will be released on Mondays. But you can hear the whole story right now and help me make Forgotten Australia by becoming a supporter. Supporters will also get access to two amazing side stories that came out of researching this episode. One to be released later this month is about a horrific 1909 shipwreck. The other, coming next month, is about an unsolved murder from 1927. Supporting Forgotten Australia only costs a few bucks a month. For info, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia or just click the link in the show notes. Supporters also get a shout out, so if you've joined recently, listen out for your thank you at the end of this instalment. The mid-1930s was an exciting time to be making movies in Australia and we wouldn't see such industry optimism again until the time of Bruce Beresford, Gillian Armstrong and Peter Weir. Among the many films shot then, Mystery Island stood out because of where it was made. Most local movies used natural locations handy to Sydney, which had become the centre of Australian production. Bush, beach and desert scenes could be taken within a few hours' drive of the city. Even so, a lot of filming was also done in studios. Recreating the great outdoors indoors took time and it cost money. But it also freed you up from shifting light, howling wind, damaging rain, chirping insects, squawking birds and whatever else nature could conjure to ruin a take. But Mystery Island, apart from a few short studio scenes, was going to be shot entirely outdoors. And not just outdoors, but some 500 miles northeast of Sydney on Lord Howe Island. The cast and crew would get there by the passenger steamer Marinda. Lord Howe's permanent population then numbered about 200. Over the past century, the people of this small settlement had become renowned not just for their rugged individualism, but also for being helpful and hospitable to visitors to the island. 
So the Mystery Island team would rely on them heavily, but the filmmakers would also have to take everything, including tons of gear, and know that if they hit serious problems, broken cameras, ruined film stock, then it'd be at least two weeks before the Marinda came back on its next trip from Sydney. The Mystery Island filmmakers would get to and from island locations by foot, by horse sledge, and by motor launch. Whenever they started filming, they'd be at the mercy of the elements. It really was an adventure. Over the next month, they were to have some bad luck and some bad weather. But they got Mystery Island in the can, and they were set to return to Sydney on Marinda. That was when Brian Abbott, the young leading man... My name is Carthew. Uh, Morris Carthew. A tourist will describe me as well as anything. ...made his surprise announcement. He wasn't going to go back to the mainland on the steamer. Brian Abbott was going to return in Mystery Star. Mystery Star was the tiny motor launch he'd brought over on Marinda. Almost everyone, his director, producer, co-stars and the island's locals... ...warned against making this dangerous trip in a 16-foot vessel. But Brian Abbott had all the confidence in the world... Knowing these basics during my first visit to Lord Howe and on my next trip a year later, I'd sometimes stare out across the lagoon at the horizon and ask myself, why? Why was Brian Abbott, a young man with everything to live for, so set on risking his life and that of a co-star who volunteered to go with him by making such a reckless journey across the trackless Tasman Sea? To me, that was the mystery of Mystery Island. Over the past few months, I've set out to find answers. It's led me to the lives of two other adventurers who, in 1935 and 1936, undertook their own epic voyages against all advice in Mystery Star's sister ship, which was called The Pup. I've also explored the fates of two other skippers from this time who wouldn't be talked out of sailing their small craft between Sydney and Lord Howe. These four men and the odysseys they undertook are great stories in themselves, but they also provide insight into what Brian Abbott was thinking and what might have happened. This episode is also about families, mine included, and the influence they exert on our lives, consciously or otherwise. This really is an epic episode, and you're going to meet Hollywood hopefuls, surf rescuers, plucky canoeists, turf tricksters, war heroes, daredevil aviators, shipwreck survivors, and a handful of accused killers. Then, there's one chap who wrestled an octopus, rode sharks, hunted a humpback whale in the shadow of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, tried to reel in an Olympic swimming champion, and led an expedition to catch a mysterious sea serpent. Twice. These dramatic, tragic, and comic stories intersect and overlap in surprising ways. And there are coincidences, foreshadowing, and twists that Hollywood screenwriters would dismiss as too unlikely. You're going to hear how some of the least experienced sailors survived disasters that should have killed them ten times over, while others born with salt water in their veins seemed absolutely doomed to meet strange, unfathomable deaths. Yet this wasn't confined to those who heard the call of the sea. Their families and friends who remained on land or took to the skies would see their lives saved or lost at the whim of what one adventurer you'll meet called the element of luck. The element of luck would also play a big role in how I came to my family and came to Lord Howe Island. In 1936, Brian Abbott had only recently become Brian Abbott. 
He'd been born George Ricard Bell. His father was Harry Ricard Bell, born in South Australia in 1870. As a young man, Harry worked as a journalist. He married a woman named Ada Novice in 1895. Harry decided to study medicine the next year, funded by his mother's family. Harry and Ada had twins, a son and a daughter, on the 4th of December 1898. Tragedy followed. The little boy died, and Ada herself died on New Year's Eve that year. Harry, who was then midway through his medical studies, blamed the loss of his wife and son on the incompetence of doctors. His daughter, named Adelaide, would be raised by his mother's family while Harry went to Sydney to put his grief behind him and continue his medical degree. By the start of 1904, he was a doctor and about to qualify as a surgeon. In February, Harry, who'd become an atheist after the tragedy, married Eileen Cullen, daughter of a respected Catholic family who lived on the North Shore. After their honeymoon, Dr. Harry took over a medical practice in Mulcania in northwestern New South Wales. The couple had their first son, Hal, in 1905. Next came Lyle in 1907. Their third son, George Ricard Bell, the future Brian Abbott, was born in late 1908. The Ricard Bell family lived where Harry worked as a doctor. They spent five years in Coola in the Central West. Then it was Armadale in the Northern Tablelands. Around 1912, Dr. Ricard Bell moved the family into a fine brick terrace on City Road in Camperdown, opposite Sydney University. He had his practice in rooms at street level, while the family lived on the upper floors. Eileen Ricard Bell was a busy socialite who did lots of Catholic charity work, and she was particularly engaged after the Great War began. In August 1915, she stocked a Gallipoli stall by holding a Red Cross fundraising card party at the Ricard Bell house. Eileen and Harry supported our boys, and they also wanted more of them over there. In November 1917, during the second conscription campaign, Dr. Ricard Bell wrote to the Sun newspaper to criticise the damnable tactics of some of the no-campaigners. The same month, Mrs. Ricard Bell wrote a letter to the Daily Telegraph in which she described the glory of a lecture by a Roman Catholic chaplain who'd just come back from the front. Eileen described a packed house with most seats filled with women. Quote, Why? Because their menfolk are not here. They are at the front. She continued, Never have I heard a recruiting speech so thrilling. Though one of Eileen's brothers was on active service in France in the AIF and one of Harry's cousins was a Western Front air ace, it might have still been easier to hold these views when Dr. Ricard Bell was too old to enlist and their three sons were too young to be conscripted. During the war, the Ricard Bell boys went to St. Ignatius Riverview College on the North Shore. That ended in 1920. That was because one day there was a tug-of-war contest at the school. Masters dubbed one side the English and the other side Sinn Féin. One of the Ricard Bell lads was put on the Irish side and this so enraged Dr Harry that he withdrew all three boys from the school and sent them to Sydney Grammar. Dr Harry had more to be angry about in the winter of 1921. At the age of 42, Arlie was pregnant again. He was livid, and he wanted her to have an abortion. Dr. Harry was now in his 50s and himself not in the best of health. At this rate, he'd have to keep working well into his old age to pay for this next child's university education. 
But Ali refused to have an abortion, and in April 1922, she gave birth to another boy. They named him Richmond, and this was in memory of his cousin, Captain Thomas Charles Richmond Baker. This was the flying ace who'd survived any number of battles in the sky over the Western Front, only to be shot down over Belgium on the 4th of November 1918. That was just one week before Armistice Day, making him one of the last Australians to die in the Great War. Shortly after baby Richmond's birth, the Rickard Bell family moved to Campbell Parade in Bondi. Dr Harry opened a practice there. Eily didn't let being a new middle-aged mother get in the way of being the hostess with the mostess for a variety of charity causes. Hal, Lyle and George, now all in their teens, became strong ocean swimmers and would later tell of rescuing people from the surf. The boys weren't just confident in the water, they were sure of themselves in every respect. A relative I spoke to described them as all having, quote, bulletproof confidence. In the early and mid-1920s, Dr. and Mrs. Rickard Bell were models of upper-middle-class stability and respectability. But to their eldest son, Hal, they represented banality and mediocrity. As George would share many of these sentiments, it's worth hearing how his eldest brother rebelled. After Sydney Grammar, Hal studied medicine at Sydney Uni, but failed first year and dropped out. In late 1927, he thumbed his nose at his parents and at polite society by getting a job as a plantation overseer in the Solomon Islands, working for the company Lever Brothers. He arrived just after a native chief named Bassiano and four other islanders had massacred two white tax collectors and four native police officers. The motive? They resented paying taxes to their colonial invaders. Another motive was that back in 1920, one of their tribe had been hanged by the white man. Tradition said that vengeance was called for, but they had to wait for a sign. Seven years later, it came when their pigs started inbreeding. Vengeance was due. The tax collectors and the native police turned up at the wrong place at the wrong time. After the massacre, tensions in the Solomons were volcanic between white colonisers and the islander population. For Hal Rickard Bell, this was all terribly exciting because it was the exact opposite of what his life had been like and what his parents expected of him. Hal would later write a novel that begins with the narrator complaining that his parents wanted him to follow a sensible career path. He's talking about himself, but he also could be talking about his brother George. Quote, Where was the glamour in that sort of life? Where was the spice of adventure which urges one to dare a lot to achieve much? Where was there anything to feed that ambition to show the world which is in every embryo man? Making it clear that the book was drawn from life, the narrator has a rut-minded doctor for a father whose, quote, wild black eyes seemed always bitterly, mutely resentful at the fact which had made him into a small fry medico, a GP of the most ordinary kind. The narrator has a, quote, sovereign sweating mother whose main object in life was to entertain and be entertained. Sick of them, the narrator rebels by going to the Solomon Islands to become a plantation manager. In his words, that I won't quote verbatim, an N-word basher. Leaving the Solomons under a cloud, the narrator next heads to New Guinea. There, 
With a business partner, he becomes a blackbirder, going upriver to abduct islanders for forced labour. That is, modern-day slavery. They wind up killing a lot of Papuan people in the service of their kidnapping plan. When the men face court, the narrator turns King's evidence and claims self-defence. For this cooperation, he's set free while his mate gets a reduced sentence for the kidnapping. Hal's novel ends with the narrator realising that mum and dad's boring life wasn't so bad after all. When it was published in 1936, Man No Good, with its subtitle An Autobiography of the South Seas, was publicised as being a true story. An advertisement in London's Observer said it was, quote, the life story of Rickard Bell. The author gives a merciless picture of himself as a selfish, ruthless being, fired by an all-consuming ambition, which finally was his ruin. Man No Good was actually fiction, but it did have a factual basis. Not that the details of that made it into advertisements or into reviews. Just a few months after how Rickard Bell arrived in the Solomons, on the 22nd of February 1928, he got into an argument with his native labourers. He struck one man who died on the spot from a ruptured spleen. Hal was charged with manslaughter and faced trial in April that year. He was represented by Sydney solicitor William McCarthy, who was married to his mother's sister and who lived behind the family in Bondi. The previous year's massacre of the white tax collectors had received thousands of words of coverage in Australian newspapers, much of it portraying Bassiano and his co-accused as treacherous savages. But Hal's case was only briefly mentioned in the papers. The headline affixed to a 50-word newswire article was Alleged Murder of a Native by a White. Further, Hal's name was reported as Harry Bell. It's unclear if this was a journalist's mistake or his solicitor's way of protecting the precious Ricard Bell name back in Australia. The very few reports in the Australian newspapers do give some indication of due process in the two-day trial. The dead man's body was exhumed and a medical examiner testified there were no external bruises, the suggestion being this hadn't been a case of a bashing gone too far. Ricard Bell Kinsman, solicitor William McCarthy, meanwhile, offered his services to Bassiano and his co-accused. It did these Solomon Islanders no good. They admitted the murders, which in their minds had been completely justified. The five men were sentenced to death, and another 15 men were convicted of involvement and most were given life in prison or 20 years behind bars. How Ricard Bell? He was acquitted on the grounds of self-defence, and he returned to Sydney to reinvent himself as, of all things, an expert in pig breeding. Was there more to Hal's case? From the available reports, it's impossible to say. But it is possible to say he was a willing participant in a brutally racist exploitation economy, and that Man No Good, despite its exaggerations and redemptive theme, paints him in a very unflattering light. The bottom line in fact and fiction, was that Hal Rickard Bell walked away a free man. Maybe the element of luck played some part. It certainly would in his future. George Rickard Bell's early rebellions didn't have such extreme consequences. Perhaps as an early indicator that he sought reinvention, he insisted on being called by the nickname Ninky, though he'd also be known as Boy and as Stinky. 
Under any name, George was a naughty kid. He put tacks on the driveway to deflate the tyres on his father's new car. And he poured ink into the communication tubes that ran between the floors of the family residence and his father's surgery on the ground floor. When George was in trouble, his trademark cry was, Why pick on Ninky? Sometimes when he argued with Dr. Harry, which was pretty often, George would run away from the family home, which was now in Campbell Parade, Bondi. His hideout? Coastal caves, including a favourite at Ben Buckler, where he'd stay until his food supply, sardines and condensed milk, ran out. George was at least a considerate runaway where his mother was concerned. The Rickard Bells were close to a family named Deacon who lived in Mossman, and George was fond of their eldest daughter, Dorothy. So he'd emerge from hiding in one of his caves to find a telephone so he could call Dorothy so she could pass a message onto Eileen saying that he was all right. More than 50 years later, Dorothy would still say that George was the most beautiful man she'd ever known. But fed up with his behaviour, George's father threatened him with a reformatory. Eileen told Harry that if he did this, she'd leave him. But George's unruly ways were likely the reason he was sent to board at St Stanislaus College in Bathurst in 1924. George Rickard Bell was a talented writer. His little brother Richmond would always be in awe of a short story that George wrote that created huge suspense simply out of the scenario of a man throwing his bowler hat on his bed and it starting to roll and the reader wondering whether or not it would fall on the floor. Then there was a poem he wrote which read very politely until you added the first word of each line to the end of the line above, whereupon the work became incredibly rude. The oldest piece of George's writing I've found is from September 1925. He was 16 and still a student at St Stanislaus when he won first prize in a statewide French language essay competition. The piece, which was printed in French and in English in the Sunday Times, was about the different effects that city and country life had on people. The tone affects a jaded arrogance. Quote, the yokels gape at everything and comprehend nothing. Townsmen stare at nothing, yet envisage all. George noted that country folk were moving to the cities because they wanted to work less and make money fast. Quote, Desire to get rich quickly and to enjoy life is a feature of our times. George's prize was two pounds, two shillings. That's $180 today, but back then it was half the adult weekly wage. Maybe the lesson George learned here was that you could get rich quick and see your name in print just by putting pen to paper to mount a convincing argument. George graduated from St Stanislaus in 1926. The school's archivist kindly sent me a little snapshot of his last year's grades. George scored B's in English, mathematics, and in, of all things, French. So did he have a bit of help with that prize-winning essay? Given his mother Eileen was fluent in French, the chances are, we. Oui. George Ricard Bell wasn't against cheating the system, more of which soon. By the time he was 18, George was tall, dark and handsome. He stood 6 feet 2, had a rangy physique, brown hair, grey eyes, a warm smile and a beautiful speaking voice, which was a trademark of the Ricard Bell men. After school, George, like Hal, apparently enrolled briefly at Sydney University before dropping out and heading to Queensland to become a jackaroo. Yet George didn't really want to work the land. He'd always longed to go to sea. 
George realised his dream by doing three and a half years as an apprentice with the Australian United Steamship Company. He saw much of Australia working on the interstate steamer Canowna under the command of Captain H.J. Bright. George's best mate was Charles Boswava, who, though from country Victoria, had also gone to St Stanislaus and also graduated in 1926. By February 1929, both George and Captain H.J. Bright had moved on from Canowna to other vessels. But Charles Boswava was still among the crew. That month, disaster struck when Canowna hit rocks and foundered off Wilson's Promontory. Charles Boswava and his mates and 141 passengers spent anxious hours wondering if rescue ships would reach them in time. Luckily, they did and everyone was saved. By a strange coincidence, Charles's younger brother Ernest, another St Stanislaus boy, had only recently put to sea and he ended up being one of the rescuers aboard the ship Makara. The element of luck had spared George Ricard Bell this adventure, but he was heading for troubled waters in February 1930 when he married pretty fair-haired Phyllis Curley. How they met isn't known. She grew up in Waverley and was reported to have holidayed in Bathurst in 1925, so George may have met her around the Bondi neighbourhood, or he might have met her when studying at St Stanislaus. However they met, their quickie wedding in Lura in the Blue Mountains was one of necessity. There were no social column mentions or anything like that. That was because Phyllis, who George affectionately called Curly, was pregnant. Their son was born in September. They named him Hal Beaumont, Monty for short. In 1930, George moved the family to Brisbane. That was because he couldn't get work in Sydney and the depression wasn't yet as bad up in Queensland. At this time, George wasn't cut out to be a husband, a father, or even a decent human being. During an argument with Phyllis, he hit her and he stormed out. George didn't return. His family and hers had to arrange for Phyllis and Monty to return to Sydney. This, like Hal's manslaughter charge, had to be extremely shameful and was kept quiet to protect the Rickard Bell good name. By autumn 1931, George, free of responsibility, met up with his old school and shipmate Charles Boswava and the two friends came up with an answer to their shared depression blues. Pooling what little money they had, they bought a five-year-old canvas canoe that was 15 feet long. This was a vessel fit, perhaps, for fishing in a lake. But reportedly to win a small bet, these two knuckleheads were going to paddle their cockle shell from Brisbane to Rockhampton. Straight as the tuna swims, that was 320-odd miles. But George and Charles would have to hug the fractals of the coast and paddle rivers to inland towns to get supplies. So all up their journey would be some 700 miles. On Monday the 25th of May 1931, George and Charles set out across Moreton Bay to Bribie Island. Townsville Bulletin would later report of this start to their journey, quote, at times they were five miles from the shore in the ocean and it only needed the slightest bit of swell to upset the frail canoe. After Bribey Island, they were almost wrecked at Caloundra Bar. Food ran short and they went hungry for three days. Headlines praised their courage while also labelling them reckless. More than two months in, the Western champion of Barkeldean reported, quote, 
Off Coolum Beach, they were upset by stormy waves, managed to scramble ashore, but their canoe is as full of holes as it can be without going to pieces altogether. Better turn back, boys, and make a fresh start when the good weather comes. Rockhampton is a very nice place, and the river approach is alluring, but it can wait. Charles and George had further adventures around Noosa. The boat damaged so badly, it had to be deserted while they looked for food and help in the bush, where they got lost for a day. George suffered a leg injury that saw him stuck in Gympie Hospital for a month with blood poisoning, a very dangerous condition in the days before antibiotics. At the start of September, having been pursued by sharks, they paddled 18 hours non-stop to cross a treacherous bar and enter the Mary River. They were a couple of weary chaps when they reached Murrayborough. The Central Queensland Herald on the 3rd of September noted, quote, The canoe resembles a crossword puzzle as it bears 22 patches, the longest being 18 inches long. The Queenslander newspaper reported they'd now covered 300 miles, which they thought a record for a canvas canoe. It's not clear if this was any sort of official record, but it made for good newspaper copy. As minor celebrities, George and Charles didn't have to pay their own way. They could depend on the kindness of strangers and were treated a lot better than tens of thousands of men like them who were drifting from town to town looking for work. George and Charles said they were especially appreciative of the hospitality extended to them by lighthouse keepers who gave them beds and meals. On the way back down the Mary River, George and Charles paddled past the steamship Baralaba, receiving a cheery wave from their old skipper, Captain H.J. Bright, previously of the Canalna. The next stop was Urangan Pier, where George and Charles were greeted by a cheering crowd and entertained by locals. After spending a fortnight enjoying Harvey Bay, they pushed off, carrying a salted goat that a lighthouse keeper had given them as provisions. More sharks followed, including a 25-footer that locals had nicknamed Old Jerry. This massive monster, apparently attracted by the smell of the goat, had a fin that protruded two feet out of the water. Old Jerry circled the canoe, coming so close they could have touched him with their paddles. George would tell the Bundaberg Times, quote, as a matter of fact, he did everything but put his nose into the boat. George and Charles shook off old Jerry, but were next blown out to sea. Battling strong northerly winds, it took them two or three days to cover the next 25 miles to Bernard Heads, where they enjoyed more local hospitality and the kindness of yet another lighthouse keeper. Then to Bundaberg, where George told the Bundaberg Times, quote, The reason for continuing the trip is to try and get a job. We have proved that we've got the courage to work and our hopes are that someone will realise this and give us a job. Tellingly, in all of these newspaper interviews, George used Rickard as his surname and many reporters actually printed it as Richard or Richards. This might have been to spare his folks any shame back in Sydney. It might have also been because he didn't want Phyllis to know what he was doing or where he was, because the occasional article about the canoe trip did make the Sydney newspapers. George and Charles had a hard time going north to Gladstone. They were swamped off Round Hill Head and had to swim to shore. George sustained severe leg abrasions climbing over rocks. Exhausted, hurt and hungry, the men spent the night on the beach. A passing motorboat saw them and picked them up. Just a little farther north, the canoe was swamped yet again. George was quoted as saying, 
I didn't give ourselves one chance in a hundred of coming out alive. The water was coming in the canoe faster than I could bail it out. And when the craft swamped, we had wonderful luck in managing to reach shore. Confident and courageous as he was, he acknowledged the element of luck. Luck had seen them through, and on the 18th of October 1931, George and Charles brought their tattered canvas canoe in to Rockhampton. 700 miles, five months, and they were alive and well. The town's evening news ran a photo of them side by side. George smiling ear to ear. Charles, though, looked a little more circumspect. The newspaper reported, quote, Now that they are here, the adventurers are faced with the problem of getting back. Ricard wants to make the journey by sea and states that if some person is good enough to exchange a clinker-built dinghy for the canoe, he will endeavour to sail back to Brisbane and possibly to Sydney. George, having just been through an ordeal that had nearly killed him countless times, wanted to take on a voyage that had perhaps double the distance and be doubly dangerous because he was going to do it solo. But it would seem that no one was willing to make the canoe for dinghy swap that would make this voyage possible. Down in Sydney at the end of 1931, it was George's mother and father who were the ones making a sea voyage. They were bound for London and France so that Dr. Ricard Bell could have intestinal surgery needed to relieve him of the constant pain suffered from what was believed to have been Crohn's disease. For the moment, their son Richmond, now nearly 10, would remain behind to be cared for by his auntie Hilda, who was Eileen's unmarried sister. Richmond would also spend time with his older brother Hal, who was breeding pigs in country New South Wales with his wife Marion, who he'd married in August 1930. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Back in George Ricard Bell's student days, his French essay, the one that had talked about rubes wanting to make fast money, had actually earned him a few pounds and gotten his name in print. So maybe using his pen for persuasion was a way to make some cash as the Great Depression deepened and punters became more desperate to get rich quick. The Ricard Bells were keen horsemen and also keen on horse racing. But how much did George actually know about the track? Enough, he felt, to call himself the turf director and in Brisbane in May 1932 to launch a newspaper of that name with his editorial offices in the respectable Colonial Mutual Building. This rag was published three times a week. Regular weekday issues cost sixpence and offered racing commentary written by George along with a form guide and all sorts of quizzes and competitions that offered cash prizes. But the Saturday final edition cost five shillings. Adjusted for inflation, that's $25. Back then, it was equal to what a man might earn for half a day's work. This race day paper offered up-to-the-minute tips. Not sure things, but the next best things. Selected by the turf director himself. But it was a case of wait, 
There's more. If you subscribe to five consecutive Saturday editions for just £1, a discount of 20%, you got access to George Rickard's very own relative return betting system. Here, the turf director offered special star bets each week. Wager even a modest amount on these, week in and week out, and you were guaranteed to come out way, way ahead of the pack of mug punters. George's ads for the turf director were plentiful, colourfully written and very convincing. Less colourful, but every bit as convincing, was his reply to a letter that Phyllis sent to him around this time. She'd written to ask him to come back because she felt they could work out their differences and young Monty needed his father. Writing back, George said words to the effect of, I cannot return at this time. That was it. One line on Turf Director letterhead. That he addressed it to Curly and signed it Ninky, still using their nicknames from briefer, happier times, had to feel like another slap in the face for Phyllis. Week after week through the second half of 1932, George's Turf Director ads listed all the horses he'd tipped that had won or placed, the odds they'd started at, and the cumulative total adherence to his system would have won by now. His ads were all the more convincing because he was smart enough to own a few failures. On the 7th of October, a Daily Standard ad was headlined, Bad Day at Last, and it said that George had last weekend picked only one winner. This ad noted, however, that his clients knew that any such drop in luck would be immediately followed by an extra good day the following weekend. But by the time this ad saw print, George had just experienced a bad day that could have also been his last day. On the 6th of October, he and a mate were fishing out from Bribe Island in a motor launch when a gale whipped up mountainous seas that swamped their boat and killed the engine. The men raised a sail that was ripped to pieces by the wind. They tried to get into Malulabar by using the jib, then their rudder broke. A big wave washed the mate into the sea. George just managed to haul him back into the boat. If all wasn't lost, it certainly was slipping away. George had previously been saved by lighthouse keepers, and now another one saw what was unfolding and raised the alarm. A rescue boat reached George and his mate and towed them to safety. The Brisbane Courier reported, quote, Considering the damage done to the boat and that all the crockery was broken to pieces and some of their gear lost, they are quite cheerful and consider that they were lucky to get out of it as lightly as they did. George's luck had held yet again. Down in New South Wales, Hal was about to push his to the very limit. In late 1932, Hal, his wife and their new baby son had moved to Scone in the Hunter Valley. On the 12th of December, Hal set out with a Scone local in a converted lorry for Sydney. They were just south of Musselbrook when a tyre blew out and the vehicle rolled three times. The passenger was thrown clear and walked away with barely a scratch. But Hal, he was trapped in the vehicle, pinned against the steering wheel. His pelvis was crushed and he had severe head and internal injuries. Hal was rushed to Brentwood Hospital. He was in a coma and not expected to live. In England, his parents set about settling his affairs, which, despite the fact that he was married, somehow included selling his piggery. It's not clear if George, up in Brisbane, knew how close his brother was to death. 
Even if he did, it was business as usual for the turf director. In the Christmas Day edition of Truth Newspaper, he took out a big page three ad headlined, A Message of Goodwill to My Subscribers. It began, This is to wish you all the compliments of the season and to thank you for the faith and confidence you have placed in our firm since its inauguration. He continued, Since the beginning of this racing season alone, you have shown a profit of well over £300, averaging £15 per week. £15. That was four times what the average labourer might earn in a week. If he was lucky enough to actually have a job at a time when close to one in three men were unemployed. Like they say, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. George's ad continued. In order that you may greet the new year with a light heart and pleasantly heavy pocket, I am releasing a horse which, for want of a better name, I shall call our festive crackerjack. This horse, George said, was going to run at Ascot on the 27th, and it had started odds of around 10 to 1. He wrote that he'd been planning to keep this one to himself and cash out big time. But, as it was Christmas, he wanted to spread the good cheer. Not that it was a gift horse, mind you. Anyone who wired him £1 by 9am on race day would get this sure thing's name. Quote, I have never felt more confident about any other release of this type than I do about the one for Tuesday morning. George's telegraphic address, ironically enough, was T-U-R-F-D-R-E-K, Turf Drek. The ad finished with the sign-off, Yours Fraternally, and beneath this was a replica of his signature as George Rickard. As 1932 ended with Hal Rickard Bell's Life in the Balance, George Rickard was trying to charge punters one pound for the name of a winning horse. This wasn't illegal, and George wasn't the only Brisbane tipster making money from the mugs. But as 1933 began, he went way too far. Now George tried to charge five pounds for the names of favourites guaranteed to lose upcoming races. Such information had no value to punters who didn't need help in picking losers. But a bookie with such a tip could make a killing. He'd be able to take bets safe in the knowledge that this favourite wasn't going to win and he wouldn't have to pay out. George, perhaps still believing what he'd written in the essay about rural yokels who gaped at everything, comprehended nothing and were after fast money, targeted country bookmakers with a letter. It said that for five quid per name, he would serve up what he called deadens. George listed a number of favourites that had recently failed to place and claimed his existing client base had been tipped in advance. What he'd done was wire the names in code the night before the race, and his letter implied that he or his confederates had fixed these races. Quote, It was our business to see that none of those horses won. George promised, you can be perfectly sure that whatever horse I send, and whenever I send it, will not win. He also told bookies, quote, the utmost secrecy must be preserved in every particular, and quote, as far as this end is concerned, not one member will know even one other member of the organisation. So this racket, which George titled the Bookmakers Protective Association, was going to function like a secret society. Brisbane's Truth newspaper got a hold of the letter. While Truth had taken money for George's turf director advertisements, this was beyond the pale. 
the tabloid ran a big expose on the 29th of January 1933. The headline screamed, Deadens at a fiver a time, unblushing effrontery. The paper said that George's insistence on secrecy was a real, quote, Ku Klux Klan touch. Their editorial cartoon, not at all unfairly, showed him two-faced, handing a deadened slip to a bookie with one hand and a winning tip to a punter with the other. Quote, The humbug and hypocrisy of this man, Rickard, is amazing. As turf director, he poses as a friend of punters and offers to put them on the road to riches by selling them his tips. Yet it appears at the same time taking steps to see that hundreds of people, mainly small wage earners and people to whom a pound or ten shillings is a lot of money, are robbed right and left by bookmakers. Further, through the claims in the letter, George was defaming the owners, trainers and jockeys of the horses that he claimed he and his associates had ensured wouldn't win. To its credit, Truth gave fair play, and its reporter tried to get the story from the horse's mouth, so to speak. George denied everything. Truth's reporter pointed out that the letter was signed by him, and the signature matched that appearing in the Turf Director advertisement he'd placed in their paper at Christmas. Confronted with this, George then tried to claim that the letter was the doing of a business partner and he'd had no knowledge of it. Truce man wasn't buying that because, well, the signature. Now George refused to be drawn any further. Truce reporter wrote, quote, As to telling anything of real interest, Ricard was as the Sphinx. The only information he gave was early in the interview when, without being asked, he declared that his real name was Ricard Bell. Truth urged the Queensland Police and or the Queensland Turf Club to take action against this shameless conman. The QTC did just that, and George Rickard Bell was warned off the following month. If he entered any track in Queensland, he'd be removed as an undesirable character. George's career as a colourful racing identity was over. His marriage was about to be. In March 1933, in Sydney, Phyllis began court proceedings that had ended in a divorce being granted in December that year for George's desertion. Phyllis was to remarry in 1936, and her new husband, Andrew Powers, would bring up Hal Beaumont as his own son. More of that much later. On the 30th of March 1933, Four and a half months after Hal's accident, he left hospital on crutches that it was believed he'd be using for the rest of his life. Very soon after that, Hal, his wife Marion and their baby son Peter joined Richmond and Auntie Hilda on the liner Bell Reynolds that would take them all to England to live with Harry and Eileen. Hal could have been forgiven for thinking that his luck had turned. But on the voyage to England, Young Richmond peered through a cabin porthole and saw Marion in flagrante delicto with a ship's officer, who was in fact a chap she'd been engaged to in Australia before marrying Hal. When they reached England, Hal walked off the boat without crutches. It was a victory, but his wife was gone and his life had been turned upside down. Marion shacked up with her lover, leaving Hal to care for Peter with the help of his parents. Around this time, George went back to Sydney and returned to the sea, working on the coal-carrying cargo ship Christina Fraser. 
The element of luck saw him leave the vessel by late June when it sailed from Bulleye, bound for Geelong. Christina Fraser didn't arrive. A big search, including Charles Kingsford Smith flying over the Tasman's waters in the Southern Cross, failed to locate the vessel. Christina Fraser and its 18 crew were never seen again. The Tasman Sea was a huge, turbulent expanse of water. Sometimes, it swallowed ships whole. Avoiding the Christina Fraser disaster and the sinking of Canauna and cheating death in that canvas canoe and on that fishing cruiser, George Ricard Bell could have been forgiven for thinking he'd been born under a lucky star. At least, where the sea was concerned. Otherwise, though, things weren't so hot. And George could also have been forgiven for thinking he was missing out. His parents had been having a pretty good time in England. Harry's surgery had gone well and he'd set up a medical practice. But he and Arlie spent a lot of time playing bridge, going to the races, travelling to the continent and beyond, and mingling with the best of the best. Dr and Mrs Rickard Bell had even sat in a box next to the royal family at Ascot and been able to observe royal happiness up close. They'd also met three of the world's most famous men. Bernard Shaw, Eilie would tell Melbourne's Herald later, quote, spoke crisply, was funny all the time, and really rather boring. She and Harry had also gone to a party at Somerset Maugham's Cottage on the Riviera, where the great author had greeted them wearing shorts and a huge sombrero hat. Eilie had thought him, quote, very charming, has great savoir-faire, but is always the man in the picture. H.G. Wells, though, was, quote, greatest of the three, a philosopher who takes himself and his books very seriously, delightfully calm and charming to meet. Meanwhile, Hal hadn't just learned to walk again, he'd also landed on his feet in England, resuming pig breeding and becoming a recognised expert in the field. Romantically, Hal also got a second chance. After he divorced the adulterous Marion, he met and married a feisty journalist named Joan Davies. Hal had also started writing fiction that was based on his experiences in the South Pacific. Even George's little brother Richmond was doing well, proving an excellent scholar at Murrayborough College where he was also a junior boxing champion. As for brother Lyle, by 1934 in Sydney he'd been married a couple of years, had a baby son and was a leading veterinary research officer who'd just written an important paper in the Agricultural Gazette about preventing diseases that affected sheep's wool. Lyle was literally defending the golden fleece that made Australia rich. Compared to his parents and his siblings, what was George doing with his life? He was a deadbeat dad who'd been divorced for desertion, he had no career, and he was a known scoundrel in Queensland. But then his luck started to turn. Around 1934, George fell for a smart, strong-willed and pretty 24-year-old Scottish-born woman named Grace Blythe. They married in November that year in a low-key ceremony at a church in Strathfield. George, who'd already demonstrated his skill for writing convincing copy, started an advertising course in Sydney. We don't know where he did his studies, but a Sydney Morning Herald ad from the time for the H&R advertising course gives us an idea of the appeal of this growing industry. Quote, Wanted, the right type of young man or woman to prepare for one of the most interesting and remunerative professions in commerce, the profession of advertising. 
Trained advertising men and women receive salaries ranging from £250 to £1,500 per annum, according to their ability. The work is tremendously interesting and full of variety. This sounded like a lot of fun, and it was really big money. Whichever course it was that George did, he showed just how suited he was to the profession by winning a trophy for his copywriting efforts that's still in the family today. Yet George's first important campaign wouldn't be Vegemite or that new drink Milo. It'd be himself, as a tall, handsome, confident, charming man who was able to make you believe he was anyone. George would seek fame and fortune by selling himself first from the stage, then from the screen, as an actor named Brian Abbott. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Part two of The Mysteries of Mystery Island will be out on Thursday. But Forgotten Australia supporters can hear all eight parts of this episode right now. To become a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Every Forgotten Australia supporter also gets a shout out. So, a big thank you to Jordan Finger, Flynn Hannon, Rebecca Brewer-Taylor, Joanne Edwards, Jay Fuller, Elizabeth Elliott, Nathan Richards, Paul D, Martin Collins and Fiona Walton for becoming champions of the show in the past few weeks. A huge, huge thank you to members of the Rickard Bell and Powers families for their invaluable help in making this episode. You're going to hear more about them in the final instalment. Thanks also to the always incredibly helpful Simon Drake of the National Film and Sound Archive and to my mum, Daphne Nichols, for her love, support and her insights into Lord Howe Island, both in our chats and through her book, Lord Howe Island Rising. Sources for this episode also include hundreds of newspaper articles found at the National Library of Australia's Trove database, family tree information and records found at ancestry.com.au, and files held by the National Archives of Australia and the National Film and Sound Archive. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.